Welcome to the Weekly Rewind, Eastern Idaho's best news podcast. I'm Nathan Brown, Education and Idaho National Laboratory Reporter at the Post-Register. I'm Isabella Alves, Healthcare and City Government Reporter. I'm Jonathan Hogan, Crime and Courts Reporter. And I'm Mark Basham, a Business Reporter and General Reporter with the Post-Register. Awesome. So we wanted to start this podcast to give people an inside look on our reporting throughout the week and to add a little extra to the news that Eastern Idaho is getting because unfortunately not everything we report and learn in the reporting process gets put into stories. And so this is just kind of a behind the scenes look into that and we hope you guys enjoy it. And this is our first time doing this and so things might get a little bumpy along the way but hope you'll stay along for the ride. So, uh, Jonathan, what have you been working on this week? Um, there was some news out of uh, uh, about an uh, inmate that died at Bonneville County Jail, I saw. Yeah, that was Mosiah Prettypaint. He was arrested in December after a traffic stop. Uh, they discovered he had a warrant from Montana for attempted strangulation, and uh, he had died in the prison And this week, or excuse me, in the uh, county jail, and uh, this week the uh, prosecutor's office released their report that concluding that it was a suicide. Uh, he had a guard had checked him at 4.08 p.m. on January 7th. Uh, they have to check him every 30 minutes. So a different deputy returned at 4.35, asked him if he wanted to dinner, didn't get a response. When he checked inside, uh, Pretty Paint was on the floor with a sheet wrapped around his neck and a blanket over his body. What are some of the things that went into this story and how you reported on it? Uh, well, this is one we've been following uh, for a while. It's uh, uncommon for deaths to happen in the jail. Uh, when they were uh, investigating it, it was, according to the report, it became clear early on that no one had broken into his uh, cell, so uh, it would have been an neg- issue of negligence. Uh, but since they had checked within the 30-minute time limit, no charges are filed against any of the deputies or anyone else who uh, worked with Mr. Uh, Pretty Paint in this case. A lot of the week I had been kind of just checking to see when we were going to get an answer. Uh, I know I was calling prosecutor Dan Clark every five minutes, and then he finally said, hey, okay, I'll give you a news release when, we're, uh, when we have an answer for you. So, so it seems like a lot of persistence goes into your reporting. Yeah, it's just you have to make sure you're following up regularly. We're not never quite sure when these reports are going to come out or how long this investigation is. And so I, I'd like to check up every few days and make sure we're ready when it comes. No, um, there's another story I, I know that you spent a lot of time working on. I wanted to uh, talk about it a bit. I believe it was a, uh, there was a uh, homosexual abuse case, I believe, at the uh, juvenile, juvenile facility in uh, from St. Anthony. Yeah, this is one I actually stumbled on on accident. I was at the courthouse uh, getting records for a pretty standard case, and I overhear a woman talking to one of the clerks about her son having wanting to get her son out of somewhere because he had been molested. I really was kind of back and forth, you know, do I stop to ask her about it? And I did, and led us to this pretty big story. And so... Furthermore, in the past week, you did a story on sex offender numbers within Idaho, too. Tell us about how that really progressed and how you were able to get this story off the ground. 
Uh, so a lot of that was just looking up uh, research that was publicly available from the Attorney General's office and from uh, the Idaho State Police. Uh, look, and I, I had kind of just been unsure for a while what I really wanted the story to be from this number, from these numbers. And then after checking some data, I realized that uh, this year we actually had more uh, sex um, charges for sex crimes against children than in any time since, I believe it was 2008. And so I, I talked to the prosecutor about that, and he said, well, a lot of that is actually with um, new, with more investigators who focus specifically on internet sex crimes, they've been prosecuting more child pornography cases, uh, which is one of the reasons they're seeing more um, cases in the courts right now. Okay. And how long have you been working on this story? On the... Uh, the uh, sex offender story. That one had been, boy, for quite a while, about a month. Okay. No, I would like to get back to the um, the uh, home sexual abuse case a bit. Can you? Yeah. So, um, what happened there? Uh, so what happened was there was an adult inmate. He was twenty years old. He had been sent there when he was eighteen. Uh, he was there. At, the charge was for the physical abuse of one minor, but he had also made uh, some videos of another uh, minor, and so. Anyways, he, it turns out this 20-year-old, they're allowed to keep adults until their, until their 21st birthday with the approval of a, um, I can't remember the name of it right now, the uh, board at the jail. Right. And so uh, over a six-month period, he had formed a, a sexual relationship with a 15-year-old inmate who was in the same treatment group. They um, Shortly after they arrived, they put the inmates into uh, groups that they feel will fit their needs. All right. And they had been, they had trouble finding a time in between, because they're supposed to be watched all the time. And so there wasn't a lot of time for them to do anything and not get caught. But eventually right. what they um, did was there was this broom closet, or excuse me, a mop closet that they could go into and wouldn't be seen for several minutes. Uh, and so, after this was discovered, uh, one of the another inmate who had been received not as extensive abuse as this fifteen-year-old, but had been touched inappropriately by the defendant, uh, he reported it, and then the defendant, William Thompson, decided to just come out and explain everything. And so he was charged with sex abuse, and then um, they kept him at the juvie center uh, up in St. Anthony, but moved him into a different group. All right. And then f we were originally planning to release the story on this on February 18th, but then on February 14th, on Valentine's Day, the uh, Department of Juvenile Corrections uh, released a news, put out a news release uh, talking about this case. And so we had to have our story right. out. Now, uh, you, you've been asking them about this before, right? Uh, the, the department, I mean. I mean, I, I mean like, you, you've been talking to them before they put out that news release, correct? Yeah, I'd been talking to them, asking them about their policies, why right. was an adult there. And uh, they, they had told me, you know, he we moved him to a different group. Um, they would remove him from the center if 
he was convicted. And that same day they put out the news release with much of that information. They also right. moved him in what they, into what they called special management, where he would be under closer watch and away from the majority of the population at the detention center. Now, for people that might not understand, how was a inmate that was 20 years old able to be within a juvenile facility? So for just a clarification they made for me was that there's juvenile correction centers, which are run by the state, and juvenile detention centers, which are run by counties. So the ones run by counties, once you're 18, you're sent to, if you still need to serve time, you're sent to the jail, no exception. Uh, with this, they do allow, in, with, at the state level, however, they do allow inmates to stay at the juvenile correction center if they were charged as minors and if the review board determines that they would be best served uh, if with being treated at the, uh, and incarcerated at the uh, ju juvenile correction center instead of a state prison. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, for sharing all that information. Is there anything else you think people should know from Crime and Courts? Yeah, we also had a uh, involuntary manslaughter case that was um, started this week against uh, Michael Keenston. This was from a boating accident back in August during the eclipse, right at, just a few hours after it, actually. Um, apparently, what had happened was he had been trying to make a sharp turn at high speeds, and he... Um, the boat, I guess he got, he and the two passengers were forced out of the boat and it continued to run and hit at least um, Mr. Keenston and one of the um, victims, Elaine uh, Jenkins, and she died from injuries she got from the propeller and the other passenger, uh, Edwin Jenkins, drowned because of a hip replacement he had received and so he couldn't swim. And so this was a, just a very unfortunate uh, case, and that this accident leads to uh, led to two deaths. And so uh, the key issues here are going to be that one, nobody was wearing the high speeds. Uh, number two, no one in the boat was wearing life jackets uh, when they were ejected from the uh, boat. And number three, he had a safety lanyard. It's a engine kill switch. If you get for some reason, the um, the uh, pilot of the boat is forced out. The lanyard comes with him and shuts the engine off. Right. He had one of those, but he wasn't wearing it. And so huh. um, those, I think, are going to be the key factors in that case. All right. Wow. That seems very intense. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty typical week for the crime and court speed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, thank you, Jonathan. So uh, w what have you been working on this week, Isabella? Well, it's been a busy week for health care. Um, Idaho recently, um, our governor, Otter, recently had an executive order um, to allow companies in the state of Idaho to issue non-compliant uh, Affordable Care Act health insurance plans with the intent of making health insurance more affordable because there are about uh, 70,000 to 110,000 families in Idaho that don't qualify for uh, significant subsidies to be able to afford health insurance. And recently, 
on Valentine's Day, actually, um, Blue Cross of Idaho um, issued five non-compliant insurance plans called Freedom Blue. And um, these plans are currently pending approval from the Idaho Department of Insurance and um, has heard a lot of um, lashback from groups like AARP and Planned Parenthood because um, these plans aren't required to cover the 10 essential health benefits um, that the Affordable Care Act requires. So there are things like uh, maternity care, women's health care, uh, and underwriting which is when health insurance companies can rate you and charge you different premiums based on their determination of how healthy you are. And so say an older person can get charged a higher premium than a younger person. And so this discrepancy comes back into play with these um, new plans. And so AARP, of Idaho is saying this is akin to an age tax on people in Planned Parenthood of Idaho is saying this is a direct attack on women because these um, plans uh, don't require maternity coverage. Now, four of the five plans do have maternity coverage, but there's one plan, the Freedom Blue Saver HSA account, and HSA is a health savings account, does not have... um, maternity benefits. And the important thing to understand about all of these plans is that your coverage is now capped. So if you exceed $100 million in benefits during that year, your insurance on these plans is no longer valid. You won't be covered anymore. Now, on the Affordable Care Act plans, insurance can't do that. But um, after speaking with Blue Cross of Idaho, They said the important thing to remember about these plans is that it's aimed at those 100, about roughly 110,000 families in Idaho, and that they're families who dropped insurance um, because they couldn't afford the premiums under the Affordable Care Act. All right. Now, do you know when the Department of Insurance is is, is going to be a a deciding whether whether to allow these plans to be sold? It's anticipated that um, the department is going to make their decision in March, and Blue Cross is anticipating the first day of coverage to be April 1st. So people, as soon as it gets approved by the Department of Insurance, people will be able to start enrolling and applying for this insurance, and um, that first coverage day will be April 1st. Um, And this is also interesting because under these plans, there isn't that enrollment period like the um, Affordable Care Act plans have. So people can enroll in these health um, insurance plans anytime throughout the year. And this is also interesting because um, the Department of Health and Human, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services recently proposed a new rule in response to President Trump's executive order last fall um, to extend short-term health insurance plans from three to 12 months. And these are temporary health insurance plans that people can enroll in it um, to fill an insurance gap or a lack of coverage at any time. And these plans also aren't required to be um, Affordable Care Act 
compliance. So it's interesting to see how this is going to play out with the um, new plans from the Freedom Blue plans that are anticipated to be um, hitting the market in Idaho and also this um, short-term plan extension. So how should uh, people that are actually looking for health insurance right now mm -hmm. that might be looking towards these plans that are coming into effect in April, what should they be looking for at this point? It's important to know that with these new plans, um, that there are some limitations and it, they're not perfect for everyone. If you want more comprehensive coverage, um, then the ACA, the Affordable Care Act plans will have that. These plans are really aimed at the healthy family who doesn't have a lot of health problems, who you're not anticipating going over that million dollar cap um, of coverage. What's going to happen legally if these plans are approved? Because I mean, they, um, I mean, on the one hand, they do seem to go against the Affordable Care Act, which is still the law. On the other hand, the Trump administration, which is in charge of enforcing that law, is against it. So yeah, and so this is when it gets into a gray area. When I interviewed our uh, Lieutenant Governor Brad Little, he said that he'd anticipate people trying to sue over these plans, but it's whether or not they will have legal standing to do so. Right. Um, and because Affordable Care Act <coughs> plans are still being offered in Idaho. And it's really um, the a state of Idaho and then the federal government who would have to enforce the Affordable Care Act. And under the Affordable Care Act, the states are um, charged with being the insurance regulators. And so Idaho already said, go ahead through Governor Otter's um, executive order. And so then it would really be up to the courts and then also the federal government. All right. Well, it'll be, uh, be interesting to see what happens in March and how this all plays out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, so Mark, what's been, uh, what's been going on in the business world? Uh, right now in the business world, Idaho Falls... It's still strong. Everything is going progressing pretty well. Right now, I have a story that's going to be running here in the coming week regarding real estate development within the region. And Idaho Falls recently, they have seen a huge boom. And since the beginning of this year, since the first of the year, there have been over 30 applications that have been submitted to the Idaho Falls Building Department. For new residential construction and that's certainly what I focused on within this story. Since 2010 there has been almost a 10% rise within population within Idaho Falls and within Eastern Idaho in general Interesting. and that has resulted in such a crunch that developers and contractors are not able to keep up. So recently we have seen, and uh, I, I was talking to Brett Magleby, who is the president of the Realtors Association here in Idaho Falls, and he said that there are around 213 houses currently on the market, which is down from about 250 in the previous year. So it's about 13% drop. Right. And if you go back to 2010, 
at this exact same time, there were over 800 houses on the market. So that's a 75% drop. So the housing shortage within Idaho Falls is becoming a big headache for real estate developers, realtors, and everybody throughout the region. Right. Now, is, is the shortage uh, mainly just due to population growth, or are there are there other factors at play? There are a couple other factors, yes. One of them actually happens to be finding employees to be able to construct these houses. Right. And that's been a huge issue to all the contractors I've talked with for my story this past week. One of them mentioned that in the past, last year, this exact same time last year, he would have told a customer that it would take six months to construct a house, just a normal house. And now he's saying it's going to take eight to nine months just to save himself because he can't find skilled laborers that have the ability to be able to come out and work with them on this job. All right. I think... Um we can call our state government reporter, Brian, who's in Boise. I'm just going to dial him up real quick. It's been a busy week there from what I've seen. Hi, Brian. Yep. Hey, Brian. So can you introduce yourself for the lovely people? This is Brian Clark, reporter at the Post Register, reporting from Boise. Awesome. And what's your beat, Brian? I deal with uh, state government and politics, um, and right now I'm covering the Idaho legislature. Awesome. And can you tell us a little bit about what's been happening at the legislature? There have been some pretty big developments this week. Uh, one was uh, a bill that sort of floated around for the last three years, a bill uh, that ostensibly bans foreign law from being uh, applied in Idaho, but is sort of narrowly targeted at uh, the idea of Sharia. Um, that, that bill has been killed in prior conditions, but this year it passed the House. Um, and so now it's uh, it's way to the Senate. All right. Yeah. Hey, Brian. How uh, it's Mark. How's the Sharia bill? How did it exactly get passed within the Senate this time? Oh, it, it, it passed so the it, House, it not passed, the Senate. Or the House. Sorry. Uh, yeah, it, it it passed the House forty four twenty four. Um, it's it's sponsored as it has been in prior years by Eric Redman of Apol, a, a very conservative Republican. Um. It's worth going back into the history here a little bit. Um, a, a couple of years ago, um, the, the state made some national headlines because there was a, a kind of a rally at the Capitol in which um, two uh, sort of anti-Islamic extremists, uh, a pastor named Sharon Hadian and uh, a member of the Center for Security Policy named Christopher Holton, um, came and gave a, uh, an extensive lecture on what they said were sort of the, the hidden messages within Islam. Um, and uh, since then, there have been a series of bills uh, that uh, initially explicitly banned Sharia. Um, and following that, uh, it, it's been amended so that it only bans foreign law, but, but the discussion is still exclusively about Sharia. How did uh, local legislators vote on this issue? Um, so, so I, I don't have the list in front of me, but uh, it was all over the map. Um, mo- most, um, most of them in eastern Idaho voted in favor of it, um, but there were a significant number of, of Republicans, eight or nine, who voted against it as well. Yeah, I, um, I believe most of the uh, Republican no votes came from the Magic Valley, correct? Um, I, I'd, I'd have to look 
at a at a map, but but there were uh, a significant number that did come yep. from that area. There were there were also a lot of Republican no votes from uh, from Eastern Idaho. Uh, um, Neil Anderson, uh, Julie Van Orden, several others. Right. Now, uh, what do you think the bill's chances are in the Senate? Um, well, I think we'll find out soon. Um, right. The the bill is currently currently in the Senate State Affairs Committee. That's kind of an unusual committee in uh, in the the Idaho Legislature in that it's the Senate's leadership committee. So, Pro Tem Brent Hill, uh, Majority Leader Winder, they they all serve on that committee, and it kind of serves as a filter for some of some of these bills. Um, this, this bill in particular has gotten a very negative reaction from the judiciary, who says there basically there's no reason to ban the application of foreign law in Idaho because foreign law is not applied in Idaho, um, so you're being a non-existent practice. Um, so, uh, so it'll be interesting to see whether the bill is granted a hearing. Um, it's, it's entirely possible that it won't, in which case it would, would die without ever coming to a vote. If it is granted a hearing, um, then, then things get more complicated, and uh, we'll, we'll just have to see how the votes shake out. Okay. All right, well, uh, uh, thank you for that. And I also wanted to talk to you about uh, Harriman State Park. I believe there was some uh, new, uh, news out of Boise related to that, right? Right. So that, um, uh, a, a bill that on its face didn't have anything to do with Harriman State Park um, could, if it's not amended, actually endanger the, the, um, the state's right to, to continue having Harriman State Park. Um, again, it's worth a little digression on the history. Harriman State Park really created the Idaho State Parks uh, Department. Um, uh, Governor uh, Robert Smiley back in the 60s wanted to create a professional parks department sort of like the National Park Service um, and uh, uh, Roland Harriman who was the son of E.H. Harriman uh, a major railroad tycoon um, agreed to, to grant the state uh, a large plot of land that had been basically a, a playground for the wealthy um, and, and, and to deed that over to the citizens of the, of the state but a condition of that uh, agreement was that the Parks Department had to be a professionally run department, not a political one. Um, so so uh, a bill introduced by Joe Palmer, Representative Joe Palmer this week, uh, would change the way the, the director of the department is picked. Currently, he's picked by the board um, on the basis of professional qualifications. This bill, uh, in, in its unamended form, would make uh, that, that department had somebody who was appointed by the governor, so a political appointee. The, the danger is that that could, could trigger the clause in the contract that says the Harriman family can now determine uh, that, that the Parks Department no longer complies with the deed of gift, and the land now reverts to us. Now, this is some very valuable land. Um, it's home to some of the best fly fishing areas in the, in the country. People fly from all over the world come fish areas like uh, Millionaire's Hole, um, and, and so this is getting a lot of attention. Um, the, the, the prospects for the bill to be amended are pretty good, I would say. The, the sponsor said he was basically unaware of this interaction with this, this sort of obscure deed of gift, um, and he said he's willing to have it, have it amended. Uh, it's currently in, in basically the, 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 part, uh, the, the part of the legislature's agenda where you send stuff if you want to amend it. Okay. Now, uh, what kind of amendment would have to be made to uh, come out avoid triggering this clause in the deed? So that, that's, that's still being discussed. They're, they're going out for an attorney general's opinion. Um, but 
uh, a plain reading of the contract basically seems to say you would have to leave um, leave, leave the, the, the head of the Department of Parks and Recreation out of this bill so that he would continue to be appointed by a board based on his professional qualifications, he or she, um, and, uh, and not be appointed uh, by the governor and become a political appointee. Okay, great. Well, uh, thank you for that. And uh, also I want to talk to you before you go about uh, – from a civil asset forfeiture, I believe a a, a, a bill place, placing some new restrictions on it um, as it uh, has been moving along in the process this week, right? Yeah, so, so this is a bill uh, that's quite similar to one that was introduced last year. Last year it passed both houses by wide margins, um, but but some members of law enforcement and prosecutors weren't on board with it, So and they talked uh, Governor Otter into vetoing it. Um, this year a similar bill has been introduced. Um, to, to give some background, what civil asset forfeiture is, it allows um, police to, to confiscate property that they would believe was used in a, a major crime um, before somebody has even been charged. Um, be, because it allows that, it's been subject to, to cases of abuse that have been documented kind of all over the country. In, in some cases, people's uh, property was taken and they were never charged with a crime, but they never got their property back. Um, so, uh, so there's been interest here in, in Idaho about it, um, coming from diverse groups, uh, including the Idaho Freedom Foundation and the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, they, uh, they hired an intern to, to see if she could track down where, this, where these seized assets are going. They can be used by police, by prosecutors. Once they've seized it, they, they get to keep it um, or sell it uh, for their own benefit. And, and in most cases, she couldn't track where any of it was going. There's no reporting. So part of this bill is to create a new reporting system so that everybody in, in, in the state will be able to see where this, uh, where these seized assets are going. Um, another part of the bill requires the police to show a, 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 what they call a significant nexus, a, a major connection between whatever property they're, they're seizing and uh, the, the crime they're alleging occurred. Uh, another, another part of it allows for a process called replevin, which is sort of similar to, to bail, um, it allows them to, to regain temporary use of their property while their charges are being litigated. If they're found innocent, it has to be given back to them. If they're found guilty, they can keep it. Hey, Brian, uh, with civil asset for, forfeiture, how many other uh, states have had similar bills that Idaho is currently producing? Uh, there have been a wave of them around the country. I, I don't know about a specific number, um, but, but it's, it's an issue that's gotten uh, bipartisan support often, and, and this is also the case here, by, by a combination of, of Democrats and sort of libertarian-minded Republicans who are, who are concerned uh, about um, abuse of the procedure. Now, is, is this bill different at all from the one the, uh, the governor vetoed uh, last year, and is he expected to veto this one? Okay. Um, it, he hasn't said yet. You, you know, he's always very guarded about um, saying right. beforehand whether he's going to veto a bill. Yeah, um, he never comments so on it unless and until it reaches his desk. I believe he says. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear that. Oh, uh, uh, nothing. Go on. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so, so it's it's difficult to say uh, what his intentions are. Um, the there, there are some very good signs for it, though. Uh, there was opposition last year. A lot of it was led by Representative Luke Malik, uh, who's a, a prosecutor. And um, this year, he made the, the motion to introduce the new bill. Um, they, they have sat down with uh, the Idaho Sheriff's Association, other other folks in law enforcement who had concerns with it. Uh, 
are some of the discrepancies between last year's bill and this bill that kind of made the difference that you feel like will get this past Otter's desk? Uh, they're they're kind of small and, and technical. They, they may not be worth going into in too much detail. All right. Well, uh, thank you for joining us, Brian. Thanks. Always glad to be here. Awesome. Well, is there anything else anyone would like to add? Uh, uh yes. I mean, at a, come starting on Sunday, we we're going to have the uh, first couple stories in a uh, series we're doing about uh, opioid addiction and uh, opioid abuse in uh, eastern Idaho. And uh, on Sundays, we're going to have a, a couple of stories um, looking at the impacts on, uh, on, 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 on law enforcement and the uh, EMS and um, also talking to, to the people who are uh, running for governor about their views on it and uh, what they would do if they're elected. And then on Tuesday, we're, we're going to have a, a story about uh, a treatment where we come uh, talk to uh, um, some, some people who are in recovery about their stories. And then on Wednesday, we have a story that Isabel is writing. Can you uh, tell us about that one a bit? Yeah, so the story coming out on Wednesday is about opioid prescriptions and just kind of the guidelines that doctors follow and pharmacists follow when um, giving out these prescriptions and kind of red flags um, they see and also... um, looking at the prescription monitoring um, database and just kind of um, some behaviors that doctors look for, kind of like paying in cash, um, frequent visits, um, refilling prescriptions before uh, the supply is out. And those are all things doctors are looking for to see if a person could be at risk for opioid addiction or abuse. And these are people that uh, need help and the doctors uh, according to CDC guidelines and Center for Disease Control guidelines and uh, just you know the general practices that they need help and they need rehabilitation and so when the doctors see this they're trained to help those people that are abusing opioids all right and this is a tremendous story as well I come mm-hmm. from West Virginia and and where I come from, it's a tremendous problem at this point. You have towns of 5,000 people that are getting over a million pills mm-hmm. within a two-year span that are coming in. So for areas like eastern Idaho as well, this is a great story that you all are covering. It is, and yeah. And trying to cover. Yeah, yeah thanks. Yeah, we, um, we started working on it after we were doing some reporting on uh, some overdose deaths. And then we finally found that the, uh, the rates are significantly higher in uh, eastern Idaho than they are in the rest of the state. They're, um, and in, in Idaho in general, the, uh, the, the, the rate of overdose deaths, it's been going up like it has been everywhere in the country. And most years, the, um, the rate in Idaho is uh, close to or a little less than the national average. But uh, the rate in Bonneville, Bonneville and Banner counties is uh, much higher than the national average, which is, uh, which is why we started working on this. Awesome. That sounds like it's going to be a great story to read. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. make sure to pick up the paper on Sunday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. <laughs> Sounds good. And this has been the Weekly Rewind, and I hope you enjoyed it and have bared with our first few hiccups along the way, but um, hope you'll stay tuned and uh, listen next week. All right, thank All you. Right. Thank you for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.